Welcome back to Proverbs 910 Ministries podcast, No Trash, Just Truth. We're your hosts and co-founders of Proverbs 910 Ministries, Chris Paxson and Rose Spiller. We're in the middle of our series on the best sermon ever, which is the Sermon on the Mount found in the book of Matthew. Today we're going to look at Matthew chapter 6 verses 5 to 18, which deals with prayer and more specifically the Lord's Prayer. Prayer seems like a pretty simple subject. If you're a Christian, you pray. But is there a wrong way to pray? On the flip side, is there a right way to pray? And if God is sovereign over every single thing, why do we even need to pray? If God's unchangeable, does prayer ever change anything? Rose, let's look at how Jesus answers these and other questions about it. Okay, well, let's start by reading Matthew 6, verses 5 to 8, which says, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who's in secret, and your father who sees you in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they'll be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. While Jesus does give directives on what the content of the prayer should look like, which we will get to in a moment, he starts off by saying the most important thing about prayer is our motivation. We all know someone who sounds as if their prayer could be a psalm. (laughs) Truly, there are some really gifted people with the ability to pray beautifully. Their prayers are sincere, heartfelt, and while they are meant for God's ears only, we get the privilege of being able to listen in. However, there are those others who on the surface seem to pray just as well, but their prayers are meant to impress a listening audience or evoke a desired emotion out of them. That's what the Pharisees did, and this is what Jesus is speaking against. Right. Amy Grant has a song, it's called Better Than a Hallelujah, and here's just a couple of the verses. God loves a lullaby in a mother's tears in the dead of night, better than a hallelujah sometimes. God loves a drunkard's cry, the soldier's plea not to let him die, better than a hallelujah sometimes. The woman holding on for life, the dying man giving up the fight are better than a hallelujah sometimes. The tears of shame for what's been done The silence when the words won't come are better than a hallelujah sometimes. The point of the song is that God would rather have our raw, honest prayers than flowery, empty praises. When it comes to praying, God's less interested in the words that we use than he is with a sincere heart behind them. This is a huge encouragement to those of us who feel inadequate when praying out loud. And yeah, there are definitely some who have the gift of prayer. But Jesus is telling us there are two requirements for praying. One is to talk to God and talk to him because you want to have intimacy with your father, not because you want to impress others around you. And the second is to be sincere. There's no reason to be otherwise. As Jesus said in verse 8, your father knows what you need before you ask him. God knows the deepest, darkest recesses of our hearts. Why wouldn't we be completely honest when praying to him? Anything else is an offense against our Holy Father. Yep, and offending our Holy Father is exactly what Jesus addresses. As he always does, he's not teaching some new radical (laughs) truth. Instead, he's shedding greater light on what's already been taught in the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 66 
deals with the problem of some who were worshiping and praying in a way that pleases God, but then there were others who were doing it in a way that displeased God. Here's what Isaiah 66 verses 2 to 4 says. This is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. He who slaughters an ox is like one who kills a man. He who sacrifices a lamb like one who breaks a dog's neck. He who presents a grain offering like one who offers pig's blood. He who makes a memorial offering of frankincense like one who blesses an idol. These have chosen their own ways and their soul delights in their abominations. I also will choose harsh treatment for them and bring their fears upon them. Because when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they did not listen. But they did what was evil in my eyes and chose that in which I did not delight. The prayer that pleases God is one that comes from a heart that trembles at God's word. In other words, is precarious in the presence of God. And being precarious comes from our knowing how unworthy we are to be in the presence of God and how we continue to fail. But don't mistake being precarious for being frightened to come before God. Because if we've been saved by Jesus, God now views Jesus's perfect record instead of our sinfully tainted one. And we have confidence that we've been given the privilege to come before our holy sovereign God. A better word to substitute the word trembling with would be fear, a healthy biblical fear or awe. Again, it's not a scared fear, but a healthy reverence for who God is and what his word says. Absolutely. We all know people who never pray or give God a thought, but when they're in that metaphorical foxhole, they suddenly turn to prayer. Now understand, the Holy Spirit can use anything to bring someone to salvation. So it's possible that a major crisis in someone's life could be a catalyst to bring them to Christ. But in general, the Isaiah passage shows us that God's ear is tilted towards those who love him and are his. And Jesus shows us the contrast of a sincere motivation by calling out the Gentiles, which is a word that's sometimes used for pagans or unbelievers in the Bible. He says, those who heap up empty praises when they pray, thinking that they will be heard because of their many words. Some versions say they keep babbling like pagans. You know, this verse is often misinterpreted. There's times when we're in such a crisis or such an emotional state that we just don't know what to pray or how to pray. Our prayer could ramble, sometimes even be incoherent. This is not what Jesus is talking about. As Jesus says in verse 8, your father knows what you need before you ask. Anytime we sincerely go before God in prayer, even if that prayer is a jumbled mess Mm. or just a cry for help, God honors it. In times when we're at a loss for what to pray, the Holy Spirit intercedes for us and prays for us, as Paul tells us in Romans 8. Good point. As before, now that Jesus has shown how the Old Testament directive to pray has been misinterpreted and mishandled, he gives instruction on the correct way to pray. As we said, the most important thing is the heart intention behind our prayer. But once again, Jesus is protecting us from selfish ambition and our egos. He gives us instruction on the best way to keep our prayers and our hearts centered on God and not ourselves. So let's move on in the Sermon on the Mount to Matthew 6, verses 9 to 13, which is probably familiar to everyone. Jesus says, pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. 
your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Like you said, Chris, these verses known as the Lord's Prayer or the Our Father are probably so familiar to most of us, we know them by heart. But this wasn't meant to be a memorized recitation as much as it was meant to give us a model of how we should pray. Although, having said that, it's completely appropriate to pray it just as Jesus wrote it. The problem arises when it just becomes memorized words that you recite. And I strongly recommend praying through the Lord's Prayer, but take time and stop and meditate on the meaning of each line, which we're going to do in a moment. Yep. Jesus gave his disciples and us the Lord's Prayer to help us understand our place as we come before our Holy Sovereign Father. As with giving, prayer should be done quietly and humbly. And just as in giving, quietly does not mean that we aren't to pray out loud in front of people. It means that we're to have a reverent awe as we, mere dust, come before the sovereign creator, the master and sustainer of the entire universe. Yep. Using the format of the Lord's Prayer, the term acts has been developed to help us understand what our prayer should look like. Again, this is not meant to be legalistic. The only really wrong prayer is an insincere prayer. However, this model does help keep our prayers centered on who they should be centered on. So using the letters of the word acts, we get the model for prayer as A for adoration, C for confession, T for thanksgiving, and S for supplication. All right, let's start with adoration. Our prayer should always begin with an acknowledgement of who God is. We, the mere created beings, are addressing the sovereign almighty God. He has created the entire universe and everything in it. Our prayer should always begin with praise and worship to God. A couple of verses that back this up are Hebrews 12, 28, which says, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. And let me give you another one. Revelation 4, 8 says, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And after we glorify God in adoration, next comes C for confession. Before we start laying out our requests to God, we need to get our hearts right with him. We need to confess our sins and ask for forgiveness. This is the first step in repentance. And while there's no hard and fast rule for confession, being more specific with your sins, like I was jealous of Chris because she lost a lot more weight. Oh, and not, she's not talking about me. <laughs> You're not talking about me. Or every time I see so-and-so, I just want to punch them in the face. <laughs> I know who you're talking about, not me. <laughs> no, is of much more benefit to us than just confessing general sins. I lied, I judged others, etc. Repentance, meaning a turning away from a vague general sins, is almost impossible. However, when you repent of a very specific sin, you have a much greater chance at success of truly turning away from it. Plus, God loves a contrite heart, as David tells us in Psalm 32.5. I acknowledged my sins to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. 
We have given God his due, confessed our sins before him, and now it's time for the T, which is thanksgiving. Again, before we ask God for more, we should be thankful for what he's already given us. Making it a habit to go to God in gratitude will change your prayer life and your heart. And of course, we should be thankful for the salvation and forgiveness we've received through Jesus. A couple of great verses that illustrate this are 1 Thessalonians 5.18, which says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And 1 Chronicles 16.34 says, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Confession and thanksgiving are interchangeable. Some prefer to show thanksgiving right after they've praised God, and some prefer to get their hearts right first. The order you do this isn't important. The point of the Acts model is that it helps us understand our position. Giving God the praise and worship, he's worthy to always come first, while our list of needs and wants should come last. After we've given God the reverence that he's due, made things right with him by confessing our sins, and thanked him for the blessings that he's lavished on us, then we're ready to present a request to him. The S stands for supplication. Paul tells us this in Philippians 4, 6-7. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And we can look at this model of Acts and see how Jesus models it in the Lord's Prayer. The first lines, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. This is adoration of the Almighty Father. In heaven is acknowledging that God is far above us. He's not just physically higher than us. He's the creator of heaven and the universe. And we were made from dirt. <laughs> right. Hallowed means holy, consecrated, sacred, revered. Again, this is humbling ourselves before a mighty God, recognizing that every part of him, even his name, is far above anyone and anything else. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. More adoration acknowledging that God is sovereign over everything. Although God's kingdom and will are sure and will always come to pass, just as he purposes it to, and Jesus' victory over Satan, sin, and death is complete on earth, we will not see that completion until Jesus comes back. Until that time, God allows Satan, sin, and death to exist and trip up believers. In heaven, however, such is not the case, thankfully. Heaven's <laughs> perfect. Satan's not there, and there's no sin and no death. In other words, no obstacles to keep everyone, saints and angels, from perfect obedience and perfect worship of God. Jesus is saying that we should long to have that on earth. And we will someday. That's right. In the new heavens and new earth. Amen. Amen. The next line, give us this day our daily bread. This is Thanksgiving. And some are split on the meaning of this verse. By daily bread, does Jesus mean God's word, a.k.a. himself, as in Matthew 4, 4, when he says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God? Or is he talking about God supplying our practical needs, as in Luke 12, 24, when he says, consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? While there's no doubt that bread is sometimes used as a metaphor for the word of God and Jesus, 
Jesus is telling us we're to come to God in gratitude, knowing God will supply our daily practical needs. But it certainly wouldn't be wrong to also meditate on this further, being thankful that he fulfilled our deepest need with the bread of his word and Jesus's body to sustain us for all eternity. I agree. So moving on in the prayer, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Does this line ever make you cringe? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Ever think to yourself, yikes, God, please don't forgive me as I've forgiven others. Ah, This is the confession part of the prayer. And it seems as if Jesus is being general with showing how we should confess sins. Keep in mind, he was giving a model how to pray. We should fill in whatever our debts or our sins, in other words, are. So does God forgive us as we forgive others? If we refuse to forgive someone, will God refuse to forgive us? Well, if you look at verse 14 of Matthew 6, which says, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Sounds like how we forgive others is how God forgives us. But that's not the case. God does not wait and see how forgiving our nature towards others is before he bestows forgiveness on us. Unforgiveness is a sin. When we're saved by Jesus, our sin is forgiven and we're given the Holy Spirit to indwell in us and sanctify us more and more to resemble our Savior. There's a difference, though, from sinning and living in a sinful lifestyle. We can get angry or jealous and ask God for forgiveness and then strive to resist that sin the next time. This is impossible for us to do ourselves, but with God it is possible. So as we're growing in our faith, we should see a change in us. We should not be the person that we were before we were saved. Exactly. However, if even after we profess to be a Christian, we're living in a sinful lifestyle by having an unforgiving spirit, we need to question whether or not we're really saved. It's a process to be sure. But if we're being sanctified by the Holy Spirit, we should be able to look back 10 years ago, 5 years ago, 1 year ago, and see that we're growing and becoming more like Jesus. And keep in mind, they might be teeny tiny baby steps, but there should be progress. Right. So forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors is a reminder to us of the absolute grace we've received from God through Jesus and that we want to strive to show that same grace to others. Can you imagine how offensive to God it would be that if after what he's forgiven us for, we don't turn around and forgive others? This is exactly what Jesus illustrated in the parable of the unforgiving servant in Matthew 18. Exactly. Let's move on. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Here's the supplication part. While we can absolutely go to God with all of our needs, wants, desires, worries, concerns, or anything and everything else, Jesus shows us that our greatest need while on earth is to be delivered from Satan and sin, which both lead to death. It's important to note, though, that God never tempts us. We're told that in James 1.13, which says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. This part of the prayer, though, is very important because as believers, we should want to strive to be more and more holy. So this is a prayer for help with that. Exactly. Exactly. And as we said... This is not a legalistic model that must always be followed exactly. That would be no better than what the Pharisees were doing. Right. But when we incorporate the Acts model into our prayer life and the Lord's Prayer, 
will understand that prayer is not just about asking God for things. It's a discipline God uses to change us and to grow us. And we'll see exactly that happening as we do it. So let's answer the question, if God is unchangeable and sovereign over everything, why do we even pray at all? Does prayer change anything? It does. And the first reason we pray is because we're told to. Over and over in scripture, it tells us to. God is sovereign over all. And while the outcome of things has already been decided, prayer does change things. It changes us. There's no better way to have intimacy with God than through prayer. By worshiping him and through adoration, confessing our sins to him, showing gratitude for everything that he's done for us, and by making our requests known to him, we will find ourselves more and more dependent on him, trusting him more and loving him more. One of the reasons Jesus came to earth was to give us direct access to God. We'd be foolish not to take full advantage of that. God wants to hear from us. And like you said, Chris, the outcome of things have already been decided. We don't know what that outcome is. It's completely appropriate and right that we pray and even plead for God to heal a loved one, to bring someone to salvation, to help our marriage or any of the other thousands and thousands of needs we have. He's our Father. Right. God is sovereign over everything. And prayer is a means that God uses to work out his plans. He's sovereign over not only the ends of everything, but also all the means to the ends. Exactly. So we pray. And contrary to what some believe, God does answer every single prayer. It may not be the way we expect, and it may not be the way we want, (laughs) but every sincere prayer you've given God has been answered. So let's finish up this episode with verses from Matthew 6, 16 to 18, which finishes out this section of the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 6, 16 to 18 says, And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. No hangry faces, right? No hangry faces. I've been hangry though. I have been hangry. Chris, we could substitute fasting in all that we said earlier about prayer. And what we said about giving in last week's episode. Right. So we're not going to repeat ourselves. Let's just summarize here. Fasting should be done with a humble and quiet heart towards God and not for attention or to impress others. There are certainly times when corporate or group fasting is appropriate and recommended. Our youth group used to do a 30-hour fast together to raise money for hunger. And we'd spend those 30 hours together praying, doing Bible studies, doing service projects for people in need in our church and in our community. But there's also times when an individual fast is called for. This is the time you don't announce to others, moaning how hungry you are. And again, as with giving in prayer, Being seen fasting is not the same as fasting to be seen. Exactly. The main takeaway from Matthew 6, 16 to 18 is that fasting is a spiritual discipline that we're called to do. By Jesus including it in this section, he's saying it's just as essential to our spiritual growth as giving and praying. As John W. Rittenball puts it, fasting is a self-imposed trial that should help us both know and feel what we are in comparison to God. 
Its purpose is not to impress God with how disciplined we are, though it is a good exercise in discipline, but it's to remind us how much we need the things that he so freely and generously applies. God has life inherent. He is self-sustaining. But when we, even for a relatively short time, are denied the food that he supplies, our weakness and dependency quickly become apparent. Food gives us physical strength and satisfaction. If we deny the body the food it needs, we become weak and we die. I love that quote. Yep. Jesus ends this section in Matthew with the repeated line, And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. As with giving and praying, when we crave love of God more than love of man, the practice of our giving, our praying, and our fasting in a humble and quiet manner, God, our gracious Heavenly Father, sees it and will reward us. Not by making a fuss over us or any other kind of earthly reward, but by giving us a lasting eternal reward, a reward that will be for our good and his glory. And that's a great place to end today. Thanks for tuning in. If you like what you heard, please leave us a review on whatever podcast platform you're listening on. And if you have a desire to dig deeper into scripture, consider our book and study guide, No Half Truths Allowed, Understanding the Complete Gospel Message, which can be found on Amazon and every other Christian bookseller. And in case you weren't aware, we're offering a free teaching video series to go along with the study when you purchase both the book and the study guide. All you have to do is buy the book and the study guide and then message us on one of our uh, social media platforms. Or you can email us at Proverbs910Ministries at gmail.com. And let us know that you did it and we will send you a video link to our YouTube channel. I think you'll find these are a great companion to the Bible study. Have a blessed day, everybody.